0: Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters.
1: People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant.
0: One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It Either, either you... Run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in, instance of wanting to run towards it.
1: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Dave Fano. And Dave is the founder and CEO of Teal, which we're going to talk a lot about, Teal HQ. And for the past 10 years or so, going back even a little further, I guess, Dave, to case design and then on to your tenure at WeWork right up to TLHQ, you have been at the center of how we work and how our careers morph, evolve, navigate, change. Uh, There isn't anybody I know whose career touches so many of those elements. And and I want to start sort of today, which is not usually how we begin, but you launched a company in the fall of 2019 and TLHQ is all about careers and helping folks navigate change. I'd love to get your perspective on how you've been navigating change and all this turbulence within six months of launching your company, maybe a little bit less, the whole world turned upside down. So as you help others navigate their own career paths and change. As the founder and CEO, give us an inside look at how you've been navigating change for your company.
0: Yeah, we actually sort of kicked off, yeah, the company in, in fall of 2019. So we've been at it for about a year and we've had a, a tremendous amount of change. And I think the, the thing I keep going back to is an intention and less so like a goal. Right, because you can achieve a goal and you can get very focused on a goal, but you still not might have made that impact or move your life a little closer to what you wanted it to be. Right, oftentimes it's implied that the goal is aligned with the right intention, but not necessarily. I see too many people like check the box on goals and still be unfulfilled. So I spent a lot of time before I launched into teal thinking about what what is that intentionality I want for my life, and what is that thing I want to be doing what's the outcome I want to see and less so like I want to make X amount of money or I want to have done this Um, and not so focused on a goal. And so I said, like, I want to set out, I want to, I want to build a company that does good and does well. Right. So that was important to me and that order was important. Um, I said, I don't want to put making money in front of doing good. I want to do good first and I want to prove that I can do good and do well. That's the kind of business I want to build. And I'm excited to build that business and I'm going to keep iterating on that. And I want to build a a business that helps people understand that they are the CEOs of their career. And just from where I had come, I've seen too many people kind of abdicate the management of their career to their employer. And, you know, I I got to see it from the inside. I got to see it from the executive room. I got to see it from below having managers. I said, people, for some reason or another, have trusted companies and not that, I don't in any way want to vilify uh, companies or or make them the villain. I think companies do an incredible job managing people's careers. But at the end of the day, your career belongs to you. And it's more so like my gripe is with people who just say, ah, it'll be okay. And it's like, well, that's really not the case. Like you need to own it the same way you go to the gym to own your health and you own your diet. You need to own your career. And I said, I want to build something that helps people do that. And so with those two intentions – you know, every day, I just kind of suit up and say, well, whatever the world throws at us, that's okay, because this is an intention that we can just continue to iterate on. So the first version of the business was very white glove for people that were unhappy at work, you know, then the world changed. And there was a lot of reasons to be happy, you had a job. And so we changed because the intentions still remain constant. And so that's what we just keep going back to. And then every day we learn, right, because we don't know what the solution is. We know that people we know what the problem is. And we know that people don't, really do that today so much and that we want to help people get there and so you know we've discovered along the way the community is key to this and having people in your corner and that having the right amount of tooling and the right amount of guidance and the right amount of self advocacy and agency to be able to do it yourself so yeah I just keep keep sticking to my intentions and with the pursuit of optimizing for learning I'm able to you know take every day as a new challenge and you know and and stay excited (laughs)
1: And It's almost like you were prescient in leaning forward on a community that's digital, that's online, community-based uh, at exactly almost you know, within a few months at a time when the traditional real estate market and what you had been doing the last period of time, quite a number of years, you know, almost collapsed.
0: You mean like from the physical to the digital, like people being in spaces together? Yeah, yeah. because one of my big learnings uh, from WeWork was that you need a a safe space, but space metaphorically, you know, not a, it doesn't need to be a physical place. And look, there's a lot of benefits from being in a physical place together. I think we're all really craving that, you know, but at the end of the day, what the physical place does is it it allows us to shortcut some of the things that we need to feel safe to have a discussion and to open ourselves up and to be vulnerable. Because when you're physically together, you kind of got to fill the empty space. You know, when a Zoom is over, we just hang up. You know, we don't just like kind of like awkwardly sit there next to each other and like, all right, well, I guess I have to open up now. And those kinds of things, once you start to identify them, that what are what are the activities that enable people to have m- and build meaningful connections what you see is that we connect on struggles, right? And when we have that empty space, we'll sometimes open up and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of struggling with this. Can we talk about it? And what we've learned is that careers are really a series of struggles and productive struggles because that's how we grow, right? when we go to the gym, if our muscles don't hurt, we probably didn't make progress. So same with our career. And you could do that in the workplace and you could talk to colleagues But now to your point that we're in in such a need for a virtual environment and like talking to my colleagues digitally just may not be as comfortable because it's like all documented on Slack and that might be weird. And so I need a safe space, kind of a third place that sits outside of home and sits outside of work where I can still talk about my career with people that have shared struggle. And what that's proven is that people really build community over those kinds of moments
1: Right. And your background here is unusual for what you're doing now and that you, you know, and we talked about this uh, when we first spoke about, you know, growing up and your dad was in, you know, your roots, architect, design, building, construction, there's a lot of roots in that area. How does that background and what you learned growing up and observed and what you did for so much of your Early career, how has that helped you now?
0: It's it helped me. It helps me empathize with the struggles of careers. You know, I one day came home from high school having spoken to a high school counselor who I think had worked at the school for like twenty or thirty years, so probably wasn't too up to date what was going on in careers. But this was twenty years ago. And, you know, I told her I wanted to draw cars and I really love these beautiful drawings and these cool thick lines. And, uh, and I really liked art. I wanted to be a comic book artist and I wanted to be drawing. And I told this career counselor and I got home, told my dad and he said, no, said, that's not what you want to do. He said, well, one, that's called mechanical engineering, which he was wrong. It was called industrial design. Um, and, you know, so that was a a defining moment in my career where I would have made a very different decision. And, you know, then I did go and study architecture and consistently I was able to mold it into being what I wanted. When I was in architecture school, I took every 3d modeling class I could take, you know, and then eventually I went to a graduate program that was very 3d oriented because the teacher I sort of most coveted time with was a movie director. I didn't care about buildings. And so I was able to kind of make the most of it, but you know, little by little, these iterations that when I, you know hitting 40 I'm like, okay, I think I, I've finally found what I really love doing. I love uh, enabling people through the use of technology. I love showing people kind of like how to hack life with the use of technology. I like building the technology but at the same time it also frustrates me that it took me so long to figure it out and you know so what my career path has given me is empathy empathy for the situation. And also it enabled me to recognize my privilege is that over 20 years, I've been able to iterate to the right thing, you know, go to incredible schools, you know, have that funded by my parents get incredible jobs because I met people at the incredible schools I said, well, what, you know, there's gotta be ways that we can give some of these things that kind of happen by chance earlier. You know, one of the things, I think one of the most meaningful times in my career was that while was that case, I was a CEO company was doing well, I made it a point to answer the phone on a regular basis because that's when some of the sales opportunities probably had the highest and best chance of closing because I was talking direct to the prospect. I could make decisions. And so that insight of like taking the entirely unobvious, you know, because I'm the CEO, why should I be answering the phone? It's like actually the opposite is because I'm the CEO, I should be answering the phone. And so all these resources that are available to people late in their career, because they've made it, what if we could take that stuff and give it to them early in their career to help them make it? And so that's kind of, I've gotten to see success. I've gotten to see what it's like to be in the executive office. I've gotten to negotiate complicated contracts. I've gotten the great comp packages, but I'm like, how can I give people the knowledge that I've gained and the lumps I've taken along the way, give it to them earlier so that they don't have to take the lumps so that as a collective, we can all do better. So we don't all have to take 20 years to figure it out. Let's give them that stuff sooner.
1: So what I love about your career path is there are certain guys who I've come across, and gals, of course, um, who get to places first and are, whether by design, by luck, or by intention, or where we're going before most of us get there. And you did that with your work in design, 3D design uh, uh, in the mix as well. At a time when design was sort of an afterthought, it reminds me of how, you know, today, media planning and media in general, really, in so many cases, drives creative, you know, Mm -hmm. and it used to be not that long ago, that the media portion of a new biz presentation was two minutes at the end, it was mostly the guys who would come in and say, I can get you tickets for stuff. And media was almost an afterthought. I'd love to get your perspective on sort of the rise in prominence of design as an entree versus an appetizer or side dish.
0: Yeah, it's actually one of the things I did my thesis on in grad school. Um, How actually this sort of interesting juxtaposition of design at the consumer level, the iPod was just coming out. We were just getting very excited by like the sleek modernist but then at like a domestic level, we still wanted like ornate, you know, decoration uh, because there's something about like design at the domestic level versus demo- design at the object level and kind of what it means for our identity. And I think it, it goes back to a, you know, identity is what a lot of us are optimizing for at the end of the day. And it's that thing that we're protecting and that we're concerned about. And I think for the longest time, design was not connected to our identity and now it is. And I think it's because we are in a much more, we've, we've gotten to an increasingly visual society, you know, be it social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. There's just that many more pictures of us. And there's that much more association with the objects, right? The objects are an extension of our identity. If I use the iPhone, right, it says something about me. If I'm an Android user or an iPhone user, You know, it said something about me if I was the Mac guy or the PC guy, you know. And so I think that our objects really is where we're seeing that affinity for design. Our objects and our tools are an extension of us and they reflect on our identity. And it's the aesthetic of those things. And so design has just become part of the modern vernacular. And the clothes I wear, the identity I put out there, the objects I use, And people have started to recognize the elegance of good design and and what it means. And because before it was more, right, like ornate, We, we transitioned from a world of valuing labor, right? So cut out marble with lots of decoration. That was clearly hard to make. And that probably took a lot of time. So we understood how to value that modernist design which was reductive and was about taking things away is i'm like well anybody could do that that's not hard therefore that doesn't have value and i think what we've seen is an increased excitement and sort of appreciation for elegance and that less is more and that making things that are minimal yet functional and elegant is hard um and then you know also we have status and and sort of those that use it but i think designs become more prominent and we've become more um, aware of like what good design is uh, and and what it means to have access to good design. So we value it more, we pursue it more, you know, and then the market takes over the things that are designed well, do better, you know, and I think that that's, that's a productive cycle we're in.
1: And, and Teal, which we're going to get to and, and really talk about a whole bunch, all about empowerment within the modern environment as people are paving their career paths forward. Going back to Case, which you founded with your two partners in 2008, that was really one of the first dominant players that took a lot of paprika from the design bowl, a lot of oregano from the technology bowl, and put them together to create environments. Go back to the founding of that, what you were trying to accomplish. You had a great seven-year run, and I know the acquisition of Case was seminal in the explosive growth that you would help lead at WeWork. But when you founded it, what were you and your partners hoping to accomplish? And from the outside looking in, it sure seems like you accomplished whatever you had in mind and then some
0: buildings are all around us right and then buildings I think right now we're even seeing are incredibly important for our well-being right how that air circulates in and out of buildings the experience is it clean and you know we had a love for buildings and what happens within buildings but we had a a real bone to pick with the building industry and its lack of progress and the lack of innovation in the use of technology, seeing the amount of data that was going into how product decisions were made and the tools that we use, but it was completely absent in the building industry. And so art, as architects, you know, we'd make a hypothesis that putting in a skylight would result in more people congregating in the lobby. But we didn't know that. And we didn't know if it was actually better for them. And we didn't know if they were happier. And there was no real feedback loop The process is is in such a way that real estate people sign the deals, architects design it, builders build it, operators run it. But there really was no feedback loop. And there really wasn't an interest in there being one. Architects wanted to make a hypothesis, but they didn't want it to be tested. Because if they were wrong, then they'd have to change it. So that really didn't behoove them. And they weren't that interested in how the building operated. We said that's broken. We need to think about this process more like products and that make it less wasteful. Buildings are probably one of the most wasteful things in the world in terms of their energy consumption and how much waste goes into building them and and how little reuse when they get torn down. And we were very excited in disrupting that. Now, we didn't have we didn't know how to do that as Teal. I'm sorry, as Case. You know, we were just a small consulting business. We were three guys trained as architects. So we started by helping people learn how to use these technologies. Autodesk was putting out a bunch of new, interesting, great technology you know boeing had just done the first building without a phys- the, sorry the first airplane without a physical mock up every bil- every airplane before that they built a 1 to 1 physical mock up of the plane which was hugely expensive the boeing 777 was actually done 100% digitally and so we said if the manufacturing world is going this route why can't we do that with buildings cuz so much of the waste with buildings was you know they they would draw it on 2D And then they would construct it and things wouldn't fit. And then that would slow it down. And that would make it incredibly expensive. So we should build buildings in the computer first. We should simulate what it's like to run them. We should see how much energy they take. All that should happen in the computer. And and so that's what we wanted to go do. We wanted to help technology change this multi-trillion dollar industry and actually make it smarter, make it more data-driven, and kind of change the culture of how things went together. You know, the old adage, measure twice, cut once. Well, let's apply that to the, at the scale of whole buildings. And so that's what we set out to do. And we did it in a consulting model. We didn't have products. We didn't really know how to raise money or do any of those things uh, at the time. But, um, but we, made, we made an impact as a small little business. Eventually, we got it to around 65 people. We had great clients like Walt Disney, Apple. Uh, we were about to sign a contract with Google to help them streamline their data center delivery. And, you know, companies were coming to us, we were starting to have a suite of tools. And then our largest client was WeWork because we were really helping them streamline their growth. We started working with them when they had like eight locations and then put in a lot of the infrastructure uh, till they got up to like 50, 60 locations. But we were doing that in a consulting capacity. And then, you know, eventually that led to them acquiring the firm.
1: Looking back now. Knowing what you do, I, I'll always use a you know, if I had the same set of facts, would I make the same decision again as a barometer for myself? Do you think now that that was a right call, that it was just too good an opportunity to pass up when you sold case, or do you think sometimes you lay awake at night and say, maybe I should have kept that thing going?
0: No, never. Um, me and my partners are. We had way more impact as part of WeWork than we would have as CASE. You know, we, we went into a situation where we were capitalized to change this building industry because it, we went back to our intent. What was our mission? Like, why did we start CASE, which was to change the building industry? And you had a company that, you know, had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank to actually impact this industry that is mostly affected by capital. And so we said, as consultants, we can only push so hard. We want to be on the client side, on the side of the owner, on the side that actually can make decisions and drive process and tell the architect that they have to work with the builder and tell the builder that they have to buy sustainable products you know, and tell the builder that you know we want them to use process automation. Because otherwise, the owner just never pushes on the ecosystem of consultants and suppliers to actually work in a more integrated way. But it's ultimately the owner that has the most incentive. And within the building industry, the owner oftentimes just passes those costs down to the tenant. And because they're buying the building, it's gonna amortize over time. WeWork was this very interesting situation where the market pressures and the product we were trying to put out were to make it as efficient as possible to drive down costs and increase speed. And you know, necessity is the mother of invention. That was gonna drive us to really make interesting things. And it did. At the end of the day, we had an incredibly positive impact on the building industry in terms of driving supply chain, you know, in, uh, deploying new new technologies, uh, innovating on new processes, building probably one of the first vertically integrated rollout teams that ever existed. You know, we were opening 2 million square feet a month. That's like two empire state buildings a month. Um, and we were doing that globally. And that was no easy feat, you know, uh, and we were doing it really good cost points and really good timelines. You know, people can say what they want now, you know, it's easy to, to sort of critique, but, and we were filling it. So we learned a lot on how to get people to work in a streamlined way, how to build a global supply chain. And as case, we would have never gotten to do that.
1: So you got to play in a much
0: bigger playpen. Absolutely.
1: And what's your view now on, you know, there's all kinds of press about New York real estate and when the central business district will come back. They say somewhere it's around fifteen percent of employees have come back to their offices with our own little company. I go back, I'm in the city probably three days a week on average, and I'm the only one there. What's your take on when we're gonna go back to work?
0: I think when we can when the people that are responsible for the buildings can prove that it's safe. Yeah, I guess that's the obvious easy answer, right? you know and it's um it's not about a vaccine you know i think that's going to take a while but for the long we stay home because we feel safe at home because we have complete and total control of the environment you know in the workplace we don't we don't know who's there we don't know who cleaned it we don't know who came in we don't know who's going to come in who's not going to come in you know we don't know where they've been uh and so i think at the end of the day it's about trust and safety and trusting that my employer is going to do all the things that i would do if i was in complete control and, you know, then that leading to me feeling safe to go to work, you know, I think, and, and, you know, and there's going to be different situations. Some people just really need to get out of the house because it's un, untenable to, to keep working at home. And some people are going to want that trust from their employer to keep working at home because it's going to make them uncomfortable to be there. So I, I think it's when it feels safe. And I think the new measures of what's safe are going to be are going to be around air quality is going to be, I think there's going to be higher pressure than ever on building infrastructure to prove that it's a safe environment, air quality control—you um, know, these are things that people just didn't care about. They just kind of took it for granted, even though the quality and the quality of air in buildings is generally really not that good to begin with, because it recirculates and people don't ask. Like, what's the what's the mechanical systems in this building? What's the airflow? How often does the building circulate? You know, they you know they were worried about lead and like energy consumption, but now this is going to flip things because to have a building run at that level of performance is going to require way more energy. Um, you know, maybe you're going to have the windows open. Maybe that's going to unbalance the air conditioning systems. You know, how is it being cleaned? If you're cleaning it with all these intense cleaning materials, what's that going to do for the quality of the air? Is that going to be kind of intense to be breathing in a bunch of Clorox all the time or, you know, whatever it is. Right, right. And so I think that we're going to get far more familiar with our expectations of the built environment. And then we're going to have clear, we're going to have expectations of the people that manage it. And I think once we start to get that comfort level, we'll have more comfort going back. Well said, and that makes perfect sense. So let's go to Teal. You have an idea.
1: You're the founder of a company. You've done that a couple of times. Take us back to that earliest iterations of the idea pre launch and what stayed the same from your initial conception and what changed.
0: I was out on paternity leave, sort of mid 2019, and um, I was kind of pretty sure I wanted to go do something new. I had been at, we for about four years already, had, you know, pr- probably felt like 20 uh, just given the pace and that things were going. So I was, you know what, I want to go and sort of try something again on my own. So I started to just take a while to be introspective and say, well, you know, when were the times in my career that I was most excited and having fun? You know, I thought about my time as a teacher at Columbia when I was enabling people with technology. And then I thought a lot about the struggles that I saw on the young staff that was in my team. And, a little bit of like their lack of career orientation and and looking to the company to help them figure out what to do next. And I think that's fine. I think building a career is in great partnership with the company, but you got to have an opinion. You got to have a position. And I saw that they were just like really under-resourced from when they graduated school or decided to start working to where they were then, which was you know five to 10 years into their career. And I found myself too many times you know, orienting them towards what the company needed. I was like, well, look, this is really what we need. It's ultimately your choice, but we need you to fill this slot or we need you to fill this slot. What you want to do, yeah, we'll try to get there, but this is ultimately what we need. And so I just said, people need this this agency. You know, they, they need this support and they need this confidence to figure out a way how to make these career decisions because these firsts have been experienced before, just not by them. And so there is a... There's a value in a collective intelligence and a collective infrastructure to help you make these decisions or at least understand what were the outcomes when others have made these decisions. So I just started to think and think and, you know, I'd kind of always been intrigued by this idea of like agents and sports agents and Hollywood agents. I was like, why don't uh, professionals have that? You know, like I know how to be a really good designer. I know how to be a really good programmer. I know how to be a really good marketer but I don't know how to negotiate an employment agreement and I dread negotiating with my company. And if this company offers stock options, I have no idea what that is. And I'm signing away a bunch of things and I don't even know what it's like to hire an employment lawyer. Cause they're super expensive. I didn't even know what, what you use that for. There's gotta be a way. And so that was kind of the initial incarnation is like, how could we almost create agents for professionals? And, you know, we, we, we launched doing that. We were doing like a subscription in a very concierge way but it was really not scalable. And we learned a few things, you know, that, you know, a lot of the people that have an agent actually are a business and not an individual. So actors, they create an LLC, you know, they're a whole thing. And same with a lot of the the athletes, they have, they have an entity, professionals don't have that, right. And labor law makes a lot of that stuff really, really hard. So you know All the employees at Teal, if each one of them wanted to make an LLC, that just gets incredibly complicated. They have to buy their own insurance. So the whole system is, been, is built towards getting people to work at companies, which is has its benefits because they're protected by labor law. But then it makes having something like an agent prohibitively expensive because I can't write that off as a tax expense. So those, that comes out of my post-tax dollars, which then makes it pretty hard to be a business that's profitable if it's trying to target people that are 5 to 10 years into their career because the cost is just inaccessible, right? Agents and business managers take 10% off the top. Um, And so those models just don't work for professionals. Um, And also like the nature of it not being project-based where I need, you know, new opportunities and the agent's constantly out there hunting for them. I I work at a job for three to five years, so I don't need that same value. Um, And I don't know some of that stuff that's day in and day out. So we tried it, we experimented. It was very focused on job searching, So we wanted to be with you for life. We wanted to be from when you start working to the day you retire. How could we be an infrastructure that traveled with you from job to job? And so once COVID hit, we said, you know what, that model's not working. You know, a target uh, ideal customer profile was someone who was unhappily employed and just didn't have the time and we'd handle it for them and help, you know, manage the whole process. But it was a little too anchored to purely job searching. And so we wanted to expand that. And so and then when COVID hit, we said, you know what? Now's not the time for that model anyway. Let's go ahead and orient. There's some things that just kind of aren't working here. Um, so we switched to the more like an education model, enabling people to do it themselves. Right? At first, we were we were fishing for you. We were cooking the fish and we were serving it. We said, let's go the other way around. Let's actually, let's teach people how to fish. Let's give them the tools so they can fish on their own and do it better. And let's let's build a community so that they can have like-minded people who are career growth oriented to be able to talk about it and, you know, some of these struggles that you can't talk about in the workplace. And we've been iterating on that model. We we came out with a program that was four weeks and, and we taught you how to do things, you know, but live programming is really hard, even though everybody's working from home. So just last week we rolled out a pure membership model where you can still take any of the classes kind of like a gym, but you can take them at your, you know, at a time that works for you. You can piece them together how you want. And then all the classes are recorded so you can do it in a self-paced way. And then you can also use the tools and leverage the community. And we're there to help you and kind of curate the experience. But it's not as rigid as the the programs and courses were. And uh, and so that's the latest iteration. But, you know, sticking to that intention of enabling people and, and helping people with their careers, you know, we're going to keep testing to figure out a way to have, you know, be this kind of gym for your career that you you sign up for life.
1: And how's it going? You know, you're, you're, you're about a year and change into it. Are you having success?
0: Yeah, it's going great. You know, we've got a community of a few thousand people that are exchanging a lot of notes. You know, we have a this channel in our community called All The Wins. And every day, that's really kind of like my motivation. We see things, people that hadn't been working for 12 years, just got back into the job market. The community helped them. You know, someone who got let go, unfortunately, during COVID, leveraged our tools, our processes, and actually are making 10 15% more than they were before. Um. You know, we've got people that have, are transitioning industries and are really nervous about it and then having support and guidance and they're able to do it. So it's going great. We're seeing our members have great success. You know, the um, we're working through the economic models. That's why we're a venture-backed startup and we've got great investors that have our back and are helping us sort it. Cause this we're kind of creating a new thing. There's, you know, hourly-based career coaching and resume writing services, but there's really nothing that has the back of a young professional from job to job and stays with them and helps them navigate a lot of these sticky situations you know that we're not trying to be employment lawyers or anything like that but make sure that you have the resources to make career decisions with confidence and a lot of people just say oh did I make the right choice should I have accepted that offer uh you know have I just sent I replied to their offer and I asked for more was that a mistake and we're just seeing it consistently when people assert themselves and stay true to what they want and we're there to support them and give them the confidence the outcomes are better every day the outcomes are better for them and so in that sense we are absolutely living our mission and you know every day we're we're getting more confidence with what we're doing we're building more tools we're putting out more resources we just ran our career growth summit last week. It had 2000 people it, you know, and from a standing start to it being live, we did it in three to four weeks. Um, so things are going great. Like the community has got an incredible vibe. People are really helping each other. People are growing their careers. And so, you know, we've got the the rough and tumble parts of being a one-year venture back startup, which is a lot of fun and, you know, different days present different challenges, but we've got an incredible team. We're having a ton of fun and, and our members are highly engaged and an incredible group of people.
1: It's a great story. Somewhat similarly, you know, our business has changed because of COVID. You know, We were planning on six live editions of Advertising Week this year. We only had one. Um, we just finished our first big global virtual foray, AW 2020, and it sounds like in some ways there's a parallel that we had to make this shift, but on the other side, we're gonna end up with a better business and more tools and more resources for our constituents. It sounds like that's exactly what's happened at
0: TLHQ. Yeah, I, I tell people that I'm much happier with this version of the business than kind of what we launched with. You know, there really was no community component. It was very much like, we serve you, you're good, you don't have to tell anybody. But people wanna talk about this stuff. People wanna connect. And they want, they don't just want our input. They, they're glad that we have the expert guidance but they also want to talk to others that have gone through similar situations because there's no way we can know everybody's situation. And so having a community to, to join people who just started a product management role at a big company and doing it remote, sure, we could probably write what that situation is, but it's just so much better to connect you with someone that's gone through that. And that's what we've seen is really core to what we're doing. And honestly, I didn't launch into this thinking that community would be one of our core pillars, but I'm really glad that, that we have landed there and that we understand that it's kind of at the intersection of the community, the guidance and the tools, you know, very much like what we're seeing with some of these new companies like Peloton, you know, relatively new, that it's not just the bike. It's not just the guidance. And it's not just the community. It's how all those things come together that allow people to have a holistic experience and that people want kind of a, a full experience. They don't, they're kind of tired of like the very, segmented value add and then it, the work is on them to have to stitch it all together. All right. So I have an app for that an app for this and an app for this. And I got to like, you know, rig it all up so that it works. It's like just, just deal with the whole thing for me. I just want to go to one place and and that's what we're seeing. And so we're going to continue to work through it, but this combination of connecting people empowering them with the tools and making sure that they're not wasting time on the wrong things by giving them that right guidance is really proving to be a winning formula fantastic. And Dave, if there's one piece of advice that you could give
1: to someone who's not a member of your TO community but
0: could be, what would that piece of advice be? Know what you want. You know, get clear on your career intentions and and really focus on self-awareness. I think there there's too many people that I see out there that are unhappy and really struggling at work because they're a little too driven by externalities. You know, they have some notion of what they were supposed to do or some notion of what success looked like. And it's usually external. It's not coming from some deep internal self-reflective process. And I really think that people need to focus on that. Understand what happiness looks like for you. Understand what joy looks like for you. That it's not driven by external. You know, there's a lot of talk about like locus of control. Move it to the inside, make it to the self, not an external locus of control. And then you won't feel like a victim in some of these situations. You'll feel like you actually have more agency and autonomy, which we know we all want, which is part of what motivates us. So have that focus on what matters, what you intend to do, and then iterate on it. Don't, you know, I think too much of the career advice is like, you know, what's going to be on your tombstone. We don't know how the world's going to be tomorrow. So focus on like what a great day is what that great day is moving you towards and treat your career like a product, like an agile product development. And just know that you're going to go through these loops and these cycles of defining what you want to do, going and getting it and growing. And it's going to plateau and you're going to do it again and take this iterative approach. And that way you don't feel like, oh, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. You know, just, I turned 40 tomorrow. And someone asked me like, do you feel like you've achieved your goals? I said, yeah, I'm alive. That's the goal. And I said, you know, I don't have like, some big goal or some amount of money I need to make. I know that every day I'm optimizing to learn and grow. And if every day I'm doing that, I'm making progress. You know, one thing I'd say is like, if you asked any mid-career professional, what tools are you using to manage your career? You know, 99 out of a hundred, if not hundred out of a hundred would say none, right? They might have a Google sheet. They might have some Evernote document, but they're not actively managing their career. And that's just a void. And, If it's us or someone else, it's going to get filled because we're seeing in this world that has just, you know, overnight showed us you're on your own. You work from home. Onboarding at a new company, you know, working remotely is hard. You need to build a plan. You need to build a 90-day plan. You need to advocate for yourself because you can't just rely on a lot of the passive relationship building that happened in the office. And it's making it super clear to people that it is on you. You need to proactively engage with your manager. You need to proactively connect with other people in the office. You need to proactively push for a promotion. And that the company's not going to do it. The company's not going to sit you down and say, hey, Matt, you haven't asked for a raise in six months. It's about time you do that. Right. <laughs> and your manager can't do that. There's some wonderful managers out there. But at the end of the day, they're kind of held to make the company profitable. Ideally, they recognize that if they pay you more, you stay longer. And that's a way cheaper than bringing in someone new. But the majority of the people don't do that. And so people need an infrastructure for accountability and measurement so that they continue to drive their careers. And, um, and it's, it's just kind of something that doesn't exist today. And so whether it's through education, through tooling, or through community, you know, we're gonna keep trying to help people figure that out and give them that agency and confidence to do it on their own. I, I think it's great. Uh, I'll leave you with
1: one story that was from long ago, but speaks to exactly what you just said about taking control of your own destiny. Uh, when I was younger, I always thought I wanted to be in the music business, and I ended up doing an awful lot uh, and still do and related to the music business. Um, and I took a course at NYU. It was taught by Sid Bernstein, who was the promoter who famously brought the Beatles to Shea Stadium, and a guy named Bert Padel, who was a business manager. I think they're both gone now for uh, people like Madonna early in her career and Luther Vandross and other, other people. And I remember Padel said something that I always, always stuck with me. He said, nobody's going to make it happen for you, but if you want to make it happen, you can make it happen. And, uh, you know, it's so simple. But says so much, and I think so many people don't have that resource, or that you know attitude. And what you're doing, you know, creating this gym for your career, I think it's great. And uh, you've got a new piece of territory that you've created and are building. And I think it's going to be really successful.
0: Well, I I really appreciate it. It's um, it's a big lift. It's a new behavior. It doesn't yeah. really exist today, but. You know, a big part of it is, you know, I want to acknowledge the the privilege a lot of us have and we sort of land find ourselves in the right place. And I'm hoping that if we can make this infrastructure more accessible, that's intentionally why we moved away from this like high touch. You know, it's like 200 bucks a month. A lot of people can't afford that. You know, now we're at a place where it's 150 bucks a year, you know, and then over time we're going to try and we have things that are free that you can keep for life because we really want to make these insights and infrastructure available to as many people as possible. And that's really what we're after. So um, I am I appreciate your support and enthusiasm. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.